Sometimes um, the Puritans can get a bad reputation. We've heard the word, or maybe used a word, uh, puritanical, a word that's often used synonymously with repression and asceticism. Uh, asceticism is the practice of denying oneself something for religious purposes. Uh, this comes from the belief that the English Puritans were overly restrictive people, that they were ascetics, that they were given to restraining themselves from the joys of life. When one thinks of a Puritan, they often, maybe in their mind, think of the modern Amish or Mennonite, those that are isolated and cut off from society, uh, living a simpler life, uh, one without all the pleasures and trappings of the world. But if one truly understands Puritans and Puritanism, these two groups couldn't be further from each other. Just to back up just a moment, the early church fathers were often tempted to a heresy known as asceticism, something that we're going to consider this morning. Men like Tertullian and Ambrose thought that sexual relationships, even within the confounds of marriage, were evil. Even Augustine was uh, flirted with uh, some of this heresy in his own thinking. Uh, they believed that the whole human race was doomed unless it would cease these intimate relationships. They thought that any type of intimate relationship, even within the confounds of marriage, was inherently evil. Some even went to the extremes among the early church fathers to remove themselves and to live in isolation what we know today in modern Roman Catholicism as monks who will live in isolation and separate lives devoted, lives of asceticism. Some would even build towers in the desert and climb up these towers and sit upon them to isolate themselves from the cities in which they lived. They sought to separate themselves from the world. Of course, the heresy of asceticism, as I just mentioned, is made notorious among mid medieval period, among Roman Catholicism, where they forbid marriage among the clergy and enshrine the doctrine of celibacy among the priesthood. And it wasn't until the Puritans came along in the late 16th century that the whole view of marriage and intimacy was completely and radically transformed. It was the Puritans who had reintroduced this idea and championed sexual relationships among husbands and wives. Philip Ryken writes, historian Philip Ryken, he writes this, The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed of the cultural history of the, of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified compassionate marriage, and affirmed marriage as the marriage intimate relationship both as necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded romantic love, and exalted the role of the wife. It was the Puritans who did that. Where many view the Puritans as overly restrictive, in the eyes of their contemporaries, they were revolutionaries, they were radicals, and rightly so. You see, for the Puritans, the one thing that transformed their sexual ethic was the fact that they read their Bibles. There was a commitment not to the heresy of asceticism, but to a commitment to the sufficiency of of scripture. 
The church had historically and has historically faced the temptation of what we were calling asceticism. A temptation that is found even in the early church, as we'll see here in Ephesus. The belief that the restraint from or abstinent from certain things is of inherent spiritual value. And, brothers and sisters, it is a temptation for us this morning. That if I just don't drink this, I am somehow more spiritual than you. If I don't turn on that radio station or watch that television show or maybe go to that movie, I am somehow inherently more spiritual than you. If I dress a certain way or do a certain thing or pick up a certain habit or activity, then somehow I am of more inherent spiritual value than you. You and I are faced with the same heresy, the same false teaching that the church in Ephesus, that if I don't do X, then somehow God must love me more than you. Now, before we dive into this text this morning, I want to remind us, since it's been a couple weeks, where we have been. Paul has just made clear through the, at the end of chapter 3 that, that the mystery of godliness is, that, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the mystery, that the way one achieves godliness is not through asceticism, it's not through restraint, but through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul upholds the gospel as the means by which God is using to bring people unto himself and transform them into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It is the church then that we learn is the steward of this gospel, the truth, and that they are to be a firm foundation of the truth, as we just sang. That the, that the church is to be a steward of the truth revealed through his word. This does not mean that the church will be without error or the temptation to err. As Paul turns back to this false teaching. Now the church has and will be plagued by theological error. Even today we're, we are plagued by a plethora of theological error. We are constantly seeking to correct ourselves, and I, and I hope to just highlight a number of those this morning as we think, but particularly the heresy or the false teaching of asceticism. This idea that one can limit themselves and somehow save themselves. It is nothing more than a repackaged work righteousness. And so Paul here seeks to demonstrate again that the only means to godliness is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not through the foolish and harmful teaching of these false teachers. That to re restrict one's appetite for the things of the world will somehow rid you of sin and purify you in godliness. Brothers and sisters, let me just remind us this morning, lest we be tempted to think, that you cannot get far enough from this world. You can't move to a desert island and somehow become more spiritual. But here's the problem, and here's why. Let me just help you out here. Because the problem isn't the world. The problem is you. You're the problem. Our hearts are the problem. I'm the problem. 
We, we can never get far enough. And so the only way that we can be transformed is through the gospel. As one author put it, asceticism not only slanders the creator, but also the sufficiency of the son's work. Isn't that a reminder to us this morning that we, when we are tempted to say and give ourselves to the means of asceticism, ascetic life, that we are saying that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. No, God has a means of cleansing you to be holy. God has a means of making you more godly this morning. And we want to give ourselves to that. And so we'll think about that next week more about, well, what has God given us? But before we get there, we need to confront false teachers. We need to identify who they are and, and, uh, and what they're teaching. So I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's found on page 992 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. You just look for that big number 4 there, and, and that's where we'll begin. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What is Paul's point? Well, I think that as we think about this passage from a 21st century perspective, it, we could think about it this way, that Christians will endure false teaching that seeks to draw them away from true doctrine and lead them into false worship. Brother and sister, listen to me today. You and I will face false teaching in our life. Perhaps you've already faced it. Maybe you've endured it. But you and I will endure heresy, false doctrine, that seeks to draw us away from the true devotion to false worship. And that is the goal. That is the end of all false doctrine. It is to lead us into false worship. As we'll see this morning, it is because the true source of all heresy is not in the mind of man, but in the schemes of the devil. It is demonic in nature, and it is meant to draw us away from true devotion. And this morning, I want us to, to, to heed the warning we have here of the dangers of heresy. We ought never to flirt around with unorthodox teaching. We ought never to flirt around with something new and innovative when it comes to doctrine. But we ought to always hold on to that truth once for all delivered to the saints. We ought to hold it true and we ought to guard ourselves against it. It ought to be upon your daily responsibility to help those around you, Christians around you, stay not morally true and narrow, yes, that's part of it, but rather doctrinally true. Because morality follows doctrine. 
So, how does the church endure false teaching? Well, two things we ought to know as we're enduring false teaching. First, we ought to see, as we'll see in verses 1 through 3, that false teaching isn't coming, it's already here. We ought to have the attitude as Christians that false teaching isn't something that, that's going to happen right before the tribulation, but rather it's coming and it's here. We ought not to think that, oh, that's something the next generation is going to deal with. But rather, we ought to see that every Christian in every generation since the inception of the church has faced false teaching. Our generation and the next. And so we ought to be prepared. Secondly, we see that the word of God is, the, is, is sufficient to confront any false teaching. The word of God is sufficient to confront any false teaching. Paul does not turn to, to, uh, to any other means to confront the false teaching going on in Ephesus than the scripture and the belief and teaching about who God is. So he confronts the teaching of asceticism with the scriptures. And so this morning we want to see the word of God is sufficient to confront any and every false teaching. Number one, we see here that false teaching isn't coming, that it's already here. Look what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul here warns of them of the emergence of false teachers in latter times or in the last times. We're told here that this is from the Spirit that we're not told specifically when the Spirit revealed this truth. Perhaps it was revealed through one of the prophets in the early church. Maybe the Spirit revealed it to Paul himself. But in the end, it, or it could have been a reference even to Jesus' own teaching about this matter. Jesus taught his disciples through the Olivet Discourse that in the end there was going to be a season in which many would fall away. Now, what troubles many as you consider this passage is what does Paul mean by the phrase in latter times? Does Paul have in mind some future time period in which the Christian will exist in which there will be this great falling away, some future event? I don't believe so. Because that's not how Paul uses the word here, nor how he uses the word in 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles open, you might want to flip over to 2 Timothy in chapter 3 where he uses the exact same phrase and makes clear that he's not referring to a future time period, but rather referring to right then and there in Ephesus. Notice what he says. But understand this, that in the last days there will be times where there will come times of difficulty. And he begins to list all the ways in which people will fall away from the truth. But notice what he says. In verse 3, for among them, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened by sins and led astray, always learning. He goes on to verse 8, just as Janice and Jambros and verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was with these two men. Paul didn't think that this great falling away was some event that was going to happen in the future. No, rather the phrase, the latter times, is a reference to... The, the time period between the first and second advent of Jesus, between the first coming and Jesus. Someone asked me, are we living in the end times? I said, brother, we've been living in the end times since Jesus has come. 
That's how the Bible it, it paints the picture of the end times. We're, we're, we are at the precipice of the end times, and we have been for 2,000 years years. That's because the church believes that Jesus could come at any moment. In, in a moment, in a twink of light, Jesus could come. There's, there's nothing preventing Jesus from coming again. There's no event that has to take place. No, Jesus could come at a moment. That's what the Bible says about latter times. So we ought not to think that this is a problem for someone else to deal with, that, oh, it's going to come. It's going to be them young folks are going to have to deal with false teaching. Not at all. In fact, if we were to survey church history, we begin to see generation after generation faced false teaching. That's where all these creeds came from, where all these confessions of faith were formed out of. They were responses to the false teaching of their day. And so this morning, we ought to understand that false teaching will emerge among us. But Paul also makes clear here what it is that they are abandoning. Notice what he says in verse 1 again. He says, Now there will come in latter times some will depart from what? The faith. In other words, they will depart from the doctrinal belief that has been revealed in and through God's word. Not that they will lose faith, but they will abandon the faith. It, it isn't that times have changed and that the gospel or the faith needs to be updated, but rather they themselves have changed. They have moved off of center. The gospel hasn't moved. They have. And so what they're abandoning, and the word that Paul uses, is apostatize. To apostasy. That is to abandon, to give up, to become what we might use as unorthodox. Orthodoxy is the consistent belief that, that the truth revealed in God's word is unchanging. It doesn't change. It doesn't change regardless if we are here in America or in a tribal setting in Africa. The truth is the truth. Surely it has contemporary application, but the truth does not change. And so we understand that the truth ought to remain the same. And so what we see changing today isn't merely the truth, but rather those seeking to change the truth, to redefine what the faith is. And this is why we depend so much upon the, those who came before us who define so clearly the faith. Let me say it this way, if there is some new teaching that no one in the church historically has ever believed, it is a false teaching, Amen. all right? If you're sitting down with your Bible open and you're reading something, you say, my goodness, I have found a secret that no other Christian in the last 2,000 years has ever come up with. Oh, friend, you ought to just confess your pride right there in that moment. There are is, there is saints much smarter than you and I who have devoted themselves to this scripture. And so we ought to have confidence in the faith. We ought to see also the source of the false teaching. Look what he says. Through, by devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul here attributes the false teaching in Ephesus as diabolical. He says it's demonic. As is all. You know, so often we think that the mind of man and that men are the only ones who can create knowledge and false knowledge. 
But here Paul says that there is a spiritual realm of darkness that introduces lies into human history in which humans are duped into. He describes them as deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. God sovereignly allows demonic forces to influence humanity. Now, some Christians are, are often tempted to think that Satan's behind every bush, and, and, and maybe because they sung the song uh, as they were kids. I don't know. But uh, regardless, Satan isn't creeping behind all your problems, right? You didn't get a flat tire because Satan had it out for you, all right? Um, trust me, he has bigger things going on in life, all right? Uh, okay. But we ought to understand that false doctrine ain't to be messed with. We ought to see its source. I think Paul uses this language provocatively in order to heighten, get the hairs on your neck to stand up a bit when you consider that what the false teachers are doing is nothing more than demonic and it ought not to be flirted with. We ought not to think that false teaching is innocent or to think that it shouldn't be taken seriously. When people pervert the true doctrine of God's word, they are leading people to hell. They are not leading them to greener and better pastures. And so we ought to take it seriously. We ought to see, as he goes on to say, as he describes the character of these false teachers, and maybe even the character of those who are believing this false teaching. Notice how he describes them in verse 2. Through the insincerity... Of liars whose consciences are seared. First, he says they are insincere liars. They don't even practice what they preach. Isn't that the truth? Now, I, I've, I've sadly spent some time among those who teach some false doctrine. And, and even many years ago, being a part of a church that was not a true church. And um, it was so true that they didn't preach or they didn't live what they preached. They didn't live what they did. And, and what's what Paul says here? He says they're insincere liars. They tell you to do one thing, but they themselves don't do it. More than that, he says their consciences are seared. The, the, the language here that Paul uses is one which is seared by a hot iron, branded. Now, he could be saying that they're marked by Satan, that they're, that they're ones marked uh, by him they're seared by him but most likely as he's already said in verse chapter five ver, chapter one verse five that the aim of our charge that is the true gospel charge is love issued from a pure heart and a good conscience is that he's contrasting them as one whose consciences are so defiled that they can't determine what's right and what's wrong a seared conscience one that's been cauterized. To sear something is to cauterize it, to stop the blood flow. Their consciences are seared. They're cut off. They, they're not able to make just and morally right decisions. They, they're numb. And you play with sin long enough, brother and sister, your conscience will be seared too. You, you hang out with the world long enough, and the, no longer does the world seem very strange and weird because you're just like the world. They were hypocritical liars and their consciences were seared. And we see here in verse 3 that the nature of their false teaching was that of asceticism. 
Notice what they were teaching there in verse 3. He gives us a hint at it. Though he doesn't give in much detail about exactly what they were doing, we see the nature of their teaching was twofold. Number one, they forbid marriage. For some strange reason, these early false teachers were fascinated with celibacy. They thought that the physical and the spiritual ought not to mingle together. And so in order to purify the spiritual, one must neglect the physical. That any desire that one had was inherently evil. And so sexual desire of any sort, even within the confounds of marriage and the confines of biblical marriage between a husband and a wife, any type of intimacy there was somehow inherently sinful and must be given up. And secondly, we see that not only the, the desires of the, of the heart sexually, but also the desires of the stomach physically hungering for food. That they were to abstain and so therefore forbid marriage. We don't know quite what the source of this was, whether it was Jewish in nature or rather it was something happening in the wider culture. But we know that there was a flare of Judaism even among them, as we learned earlier in chapter 1, that they were given into myths and endless genealogies and speculations from the Old Testament. And so here the abstaining of food may have been those foods which were considered in the Old Testament unclean. Regardless of how one understands it, it was a tendency and a temptation to neglect something in order to gain something spiritually. To limit themselves from marriage or from certain foods in order to be seen as more spiritual. And you see, this is the temptation. This is the problem and why false teachers often go here. Because you can't deal with greed and you can't deal with lust and you can't deal with the sins of the heart when you don't have the gospel. See, when you're devoid of the gospel, you have to deal with external things. You can't deal with internal things. Because only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is built to deal with internal things. You remember in the Gospels when Jesus declared all things clean? He, he declared that all food was clean. That you as a Christian could eat anything. You can eat pigs, okay? It's okay. You might not choose to eat pigs because you think they're gross. Or you, you may choose to eat bacon every day, whatever you choose to do. Uh, but, but we as Christians are not forbidden uh, to eat certain types of food or to drink certain types of drink, all right? Now, you might personally say, hey, I'm not going to drink alcohol, but the Bible itself does not forbid you from consuming alcohol. It just forbids you from becoming a drunk. Now, to be clear here, Jesus declares all food to be clean. But you know what he began with? He began by saying that out of the heart of man comes evil things. In other words, what Jesus was confronting in the Pharisees who focused on external things is to tell them, listen, only my gospel can change your heart. You see, all of the external behaviors that we do are merely a mirror of our own depraved hearts. And only the gospel can change our hearts. Our, the problem with gluttony isn't that we eat too much. 
The problem with drunkenness isn't that we drink too much. The, 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 these aren't the problem. The, the, the problem is much deeper than that. It's, it's much deeper than our behavior. It goes at the, the motives of our heart. And, and you see, false teaching that doesn't have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tries to deal with the heart, but it doesn't have the tools to deal with the heart. So it only deals with the surface issues. And this is why... The, the tendency among Christians and the temptation among Christians is to deal with external matters and neglect the matters of the heart because everyone sees the external and nobody sees the internal. If my perception of you is based solely on the external, the things you do, and not on the internal, the things you think, then I'm probably going to think better of you, ain't I? <laughs> because we have this natural tendency to, to want to present ourselves to others as if we have our life together and everything is great. Did you know that's why when you're in a conversation with somebody, I bet you you did it today, that when someone you began to talk with somebody, you talked about the weather because you don't want to talk about what really matters. Who stinking cares about the weather? I mean, isn't it fascinating how quick we, we, we go to defense and our defense is the sun is shining outside and, man, it, it might snow this week. And, you know, whoo, man, it's a little warm for December, isn't it? We, we talk about these things because it's a defense mechanism. We don't want to talk about what really matters. We don't want people to know that, that if they really begin to pry into us, our, our lives are pretty messed up. And we're struggling with some things. And so asceticism seeks to transform the outside of man rather than to change what really matters, which is the inside of man. I wonder this morning, friend, are you tempted to think that the removal of certain things in your life is sufficient to save you. Now, if I just quit drinking, then I know I'll be right with God. Well, first, I need to stop doing this. I know that I need to give up those cigarettes. I know that living with my boyfriend is sinful, but my goodness, I, I, I know I need to give that up first. Or, my goodness, I know all I need to do is stop listening to that trashy music or, or watching those movies. I know, I know, if I just stop doing that, then everything will be all right. You see, we are so tempted to think that if we just stop doing X, then somehow we'll be okay with God. But do you see how much that undermines the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ Jesus gave up heaven that you might be saved. Jesus gave up. He's not asking you to give up in order to be saved. Yes, there is a time for which we must die to ourselves. Yes, there is a time where we must repent and turn to Christ and give up some sin. But we must not understand we don't start there. It's where we end. Asceticism, brothers, will never save you. Sisters, you must understand that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins not to save you through the denial of yourself from certain things. You know, for you, it may be one or the other. 
And so we're very generic this morning. But we need to understand that you can remove every temptation around you. You can go to that desert island, but you cannot remove the heart of the problem. You need a new heart, friend. And Jesus Christ promised through the gospel that he would give you a new heart, new desires, and new affections. And through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have a new life. Christian, where are you being tempted to self-righteousness? Where are you tempted to only focus on external behavior rather than internal transformation? Perhaps you look to your abstinence from certain things of this world in order to achieve your good conscience. Maybe for you, you think, man, I am good with God today because I don't do X. Never, ever, ever, ever base your confidence with your relationship with God based on something you did. That's a dangerous place to be. It is because of what Jesus did, not because you pulled yourself up by your proverbial bootstraps and you got rid of some nasty things in your life. Not at all. It's because God did a work in your life and he redeemed you through the blood of his son. Perhaps this morning you compare yourself to others and think, oh, I don't do that. And somehow you're more spiritual. I would never drink. I would never eat that. I would never do that or watch that or consume that or listen to that. Friends, stop comparing yourself to those around you and compare yourself to Jesus who died for you and redeemed you. Your standing isn't in what you've done, but in who Jesus is. And I think more importantly, as we'll see in a moment, give thanks for the things God has given you in your life. Calvin helpfully reminds us here, he says, God takes great care of his church by giving them this advance warning of impending danger. Satan uses many crafty ways to lead us into error, and he has numerous deceitful ways to attack us. But God provides us with the armor we need so long as we have not been or not given to deception. So we should never say that the darkness is stronger than the light. Or that truth is defeated by error. For when we are led astray from salvation, we are paying the penalty for our own laziness and carelessness. In other words, as Calvin says, God has given us sufficient means and he has warned us that error will come. Friend, there are a lot of heresies out there that you and I will face. There are a lot of temptations that you and I will face to abandon the gospel. But the ones we want to be most aware of are the subtle ones. The subtle ones, like like I just mentioned, comparing ourselves to others. Thinking that what we do is what matters, rather than what Christ has done for us. Christians will endure false teaching, and we have been forearmed, and so by that been forewarned. That false teaching is not something distant from us, but is rather something we will endure every day. But we must not grow weary, we must not abandon, but rather we must see that God has given us his word as the sufficient means to confront any false teaching. And this is what we see in verses 3 and following. Notice what Paul does. Paul confronts this false teaching by turning to the Scripture. 
by turning to the scripture, this revelation of the character of God. Notice what he does. He says, listen, there are these out here that are forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods. And notice what he does. He goes on. These things that God created to be received with thanksgiving. That, that word that is, is, a, is a content word. It's a word that refers back to what was just said. In other words, he's saying that God, we could, we could kind of rearrange the sentence, and we could say it this way. God created marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, marriage and food is a gift from God. Amen. Marriage is not the invention of man. My kids ask me every once in a while, hey, who came up with the idea that we ought to eat corn or that we ought to eat potatoes or we ought to eat this or that? You know, all right. You know, like you wonder, like, who was the first person that picked up a carrot and said, hey, that looks yummy. That came out of the ground. That must be delicious. You know, I mean, right. You think about it. It's like. Well, no, God, he, he graciously showed his people and gave us the knowledge to know that, hey, that's food and that's good. And we ought to eat that. Right. Isn't that amazing? Do you ever wonder like why we don't go outside and chew on tree trunks, but we chew on, you know, the nuts that come off of trees? Yeah, it's just wonderful. It's a, it's a part of God's glorious creation that God created all things good. Well, what is Paul doing? Well, Paul is appealing to the Genesis account, isn't he? Gen Listen to this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. See, he told them, This is food. This is not food. This is for you. I made this, he says, for you to enjoy. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he, what he had made, and it was very good. That's what Paul says right here, isn't it? That God, look what he says, verse 4, for everything created by God is what? Good. And nothing, no, not anything, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created this world good, and it ought to be enjoyed as good. Paul here is appealing to creation and the fact that God created for his glory and our enjoyment. God didn't just create to create. He created for his glory. And God is glorified when we enjoy what God made. When we wonder in the glory of the goodness God has given us. And Paul says, when we abstain from the things of this world that are good then we abstain from the goodness of God. We abstain from, we are limited from, the things that God has given us to enjoy. Now, now to be very clear, because I know your mind is already going there. Well, does that mean that everything is good? I mean everything? Well, not at all. We live in a fallen world. And there are some things that, sadly, Satan has used to pervert. You know, Satan doesn't create anything. He doesn't have anything. 
Uh, he, he's not God. He doesn't have the God-like abilities at all, okay, despite what Hollywood might have taught you to believe about him. But rather, what he takes is what God made, and he perverts it. He distorts it. He changes it. So food is good, but yet gluttony is sin, right? Sex is good, right? But sexual immorality is sin. You see, God takes what's good, and, or rather Satan takes what's good, and he perverts it. So, so you wouldn't say that illegal drugs is good. Like, oh, this passage here says that everything's good. That must mean illegal drugs is good. Not at all. Because a perversion of, of what God created. But we ought to enjoy what God has given us that's good. And so Paul here is declaring that the new covenant community has a privilege to eat all foods. He appeals here in two ways to the new covenant community. Notice what he says. By those who believe and know the truth. In other words, there's a subset of humanity that knows the truth and who believes. Verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There is a particular people that God has created and they are enjoying it. And so John Stott, I think just so helpful here, he writes this about giving thanks. Notice what he says. He says this, we should determine... Then to recognize and acknowledge and appreciate and celebrate all the gifts of the creator. The joys of gender, marriage, sex, children, parenthood, and family life. And our extended family and friends. The rhythm of work and rest. The daily work as a means to cooperate with God and serve the common good. And of the Lord's day when we exchange work for worship. The blessings of peace, freedom, justice, and a good government and of food and drink, clothing and shelter, and our human creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, sculpture, drama, and in the skills and strengths displayed in sport. All these ways, he says, we ought to enjoy and give thanks for a good God who has given us good gifts. Now, I began by saying that false teaching seeks to lead our devotion away from God and two, false worship. And I believe that's what Paul is arguing here. If God created this world good, and he created food and marriage good, to be enjoyed, to be received, not just used. You see, we live in a culture that uses these things and abuses these things. Abuses marriage relationship. Abuses intimacy that is meant to be in marriage. Abuses food. We live in a culture that stinking abuses food more than it uses it. But Paul here is arguing, notice what he says, to be received, twice he says, to be received with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is is an act of worship. It's an act of acknowledging that what I have is not my own. It's not mine. It was given to me. Do you recognize, do you realize, friend, that everything you have is a gift? We began our service with, I think, just just a memorable word from James chapter 1 and verse 17. That every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no shadow due to change. In other words, God's character doesn't change. He's always a good gift giver. He'll beat you in every Christmas gift exchange. 
He has given the ultimate gift. He's given his own son. He will and always be a God who gives good gifts. And we ought then to be a people who receive all good things with thanksgiving. We ought to receive the gifts God has given us as an act of worship and devotion to him. And so this is what Paul is arguing. Listen, listen. If we are to be given into asceticism, then we are giving into false worship and idolatry. And we are neglecting true worship. In other words, we're robbing God of his glory when we abstain from good things that God has given us. Many of you in this room remember days in which certain types of entertainment were forbidden. I love what Stott says there. He says that we ought to give thanks for human creativity expressed in music, not just your favorite music, music, literature, not just your favorite author, paintings, sculpture, and drama. And I don't think Stott meant Christian. And the skills and strengths of, of those displayed in sport. Amen, right? Now, these things often, sadly, become idolatrous and Christian worship these things over and against their creator. But that does not that should not mean just because some abuse these things and are given into sin that we ought to neglect them, but rather see them as a gift from God. Did you know that when you work, you are participating in God's good order, that work is a good thing that is actually meant to be a means of worship? For you to give thanks that you actually have the ability to do the job that you do. You may not like the job you're doing. But it doesn't matter. God doesn't invite us to like it, but rather do it. But we ought to do it with joy, knowing that we are participating in God's creation, his economy. We are acting like God when we use our abilities to do things and create things. Friends, do you see that all things that God created are good and for your enjoyment? It is a reminder to us this morning that God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, do you recognize God's care for you? Even though you do not acknowledge him, he cares for you. This passage says that he created you and he created things for you and for your enjoyment. He sustains you every day. He supplies. I mean, get this. You don't want anything to do with him. You don't want a relationship with him. But that doesn't stop him from providing things for you. And giving you the sun. And giving you bread. And food to eat. And water to drink. All these things. Gifts from God. A friend, won't you turn and trust him today? He, he, his greatest care for you this morning is his son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave as a sacrifice for your life that you might have a relationship with him. Turn and trust in him today. Trust us. He is a God who loves you. If you want to know more about having a relationship with him, just turn to one of the people sitting around you and ask them, how do I follow Jesus? Christian, did you know and do you give thanks regularly for the gracious gifts God has given you? You ought to acknowledge that God is the supreme source of all good that we enjoy. 
Whether we're enjoying a great football game or enjoying time with our children or out in creation, fishing, doing whatever you like to do, doing you, whatever that is, take time to enjoy all of those things as a gift from God. Yes, there are seasons which we might choose to go without something. We might say, hey, I'm going to stay off social media for a month. Or I'm going to give up desserts for a year. Yikes. Don't do that. You might need counseling. Whatever it is. There might be a season in which you set something aside. But we must never think that the removal of certain things will somehow make us more spiritual. Furthermore, we must rest on the knowledge that Scripture is sufficient to deal with any false teaching. Our first reaction when we hear something that doesn't sound right is to open our word and and to measure it with the Scripture. That's what Paul did. He turned quickly to the Scripture and dealt with it there that the Word of God is sufficient, he says. And remember, brothers and sisters, That we must never grow weary with the plethora of false teaching, but rather see it as a means to know God better, to study his word. Remember, friend, that there is nothing new under the sun. This is why I am committed to Christian studying church history. I think a lot of our problems today in contemporary evangelicalism could be dealt with by just studying a few hundred years of church history. We would not be so quickly given into the winds and waves of this world if we would just understand that Christians who came before us suffered and we ourselves will suffer. That we are friends and aliens and strangers in this world. Friends, do not ever be tempted to believe that this world and this country is somehow growing warmer and warmer to Christianity. It will not never happen and it has never happened. We ought not be building little kingdoms here on earth, but rather giving ourselves to the kingdom. Look, we ought to see that Satan only has one bag of tricks, and he has used those same bag of tricks throughout Christendom. He has used it throughout church history, and he will use them on you. So we must guard ourselves by knowing God better. For in the church will endure these false teachings. We must never lose heart, but we must give ourselves to him. I conclude with this, as we think about this theme uh, of not giving ourselves to false worship, but rather worshiping God, giving things. G.K. Chesterton has this this sort of pithy little poem that he wrote when he thinks about those Christians who are all about asceticism, all about restraint and abstinence from the things of this world. He says this, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Brothers and sisters, we ought to learn, and we ought to believe, and we ought to behave in such a way that whatever we do, whatever we eat or drink or whatever we do, we ought to do it all for the glory of God. Let that be our life. Let's pray. Help us, Father, I pray, to do all things for your glory.